Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's women in the academy and professions. Giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. Welcome to this special year in review episode of All Shall Be Well, conversations with women in the academy and beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and I'm delighted to share with you some of the highlights and meaningful moments from this past year. We loved every one of our podcast guests in 2019 and their contributions to our community through the sharing of their voices and stories. I was unable to include every guest we had this past year in this review, so be sure to check out the rest of the episodes available wherever you listen to podcasts. We would also like to say thank you so much to everyone who has partnered with this podcast through your generosity, prayer, and encouragement. It's through partners like you that we are able to continue sharing these brilliant women's voices with our listeners. If you would like to financially support future episodes so that we can continue to reach and serve women in academia, please consider giving a special year-end gift at www.givetoiv.org. That's www.givetoiv.org slash WAP. Thank you again for listening, and please share these episodes with others who may be encouraged by these collective voices as well. So without further ado, here's a sampling of some of the interviews from this past year. This past winter, we had the opportunity to hear from Janine Uzel, COO of Wikimedia, the nonprofit that operates Wikipedia. I love Janine's thoughts on ambition and how she navigated inequalities and injustice in the workplace, as well as the one piece of advice that she would offer her younger self. First of all, it's really important for me to make sure that it's clear that I don't have any problem with ambition. There's nothing wrong with having a passion and a desire and goals and, and wanting to attain them. What I'm committed to doing is surrendering them to God every day, all the time, and making sure that the things that I'm chasing after are really things that he's putting in front of me so that I'm always chasing and running in step with him. You know, what is God calling me to do and what is he calling me to put off? So I hear you share about a period of time when you were really angry, and I would say rightly so because the list of offenses is long. But I also understand what, you're, what you mean when you say like you can't carry that anger with you into all things. How did you work that out? How did you actually like process that anger and bring it to God and come to a place where you're able to experience these offenses, but not let them destroy you? It's, it's a great question that I, I want to talk to in two ways. I want to talk about what it meant to me spiritually and also what it meant practically. And then what I did and then where I missed it. So what I didn't do was use my voice. I'm a stronger woman now. And I I say that because although many people will listen to this interview, I know that it is for women. And what I did not do is use my voice. I didn't speak up for myself. I didn't shine a light on the, the difficulties that I was facing. I didn't report some of the challenges because I was afraid. I was afraid of oh, am I going to lose my job if I speak up? Oh, am I going to be the outcast? I'll never get promoted. I was so afraid of that. And um, I lived in that fear for, for years. And thank God that he restores the time and the freedom. And I, and I want 
the women that hear this to know that I didn't have the support that I needed to even encourage me to know that I could say something. Mm -hmm. So find that support because not saying anything doesn't help anyone. So that's what I didn't do. What I did do practically was change roles. I needed a new job. I needed to be in a different environment. So if you could go back to that younger self and offer one piece of advice, what would it be? Wow, just one piece? Because <laughs> I want to tell my <laughs> Yeah, just one. I want my younger self to know that she is amazing just the way God made her. Because I spent so many years consumed with, am I pretty enough? Am I the right weight? Does my hair look right? I don't look like everyone else. You name it, I put an insecurity on top of it. Mm-hmm. And I just want that girl to know it turns out really well. And that she's fearfully and wonderfully made. Although I'm sure one of my Sunday school teachers told me that when I was young. I didn't know what that meant. And I just want her to know that, that she doesn't need to spend the time on that, that there's nothing wrong with being smart or wearing glasses or having short hair or having long hair or being overweight or being underweight or, be, there's no, or having older parents or younger parents. All of those things can work together for the good of them that love the Lord. Also last winter, we heard from Dr. Ruth Lopez-Turley, researcher and professor at Rice University. Ruth offered her story of a transformational encounter with God and how wrestling with just one question shifted the way she viewed God's calling on her life, eventually affecting and changing education research on a national level. This is many years ago. I was contacted by a foundation that asked me to submit a proposal. That was the first time that anyone had had like asked me to ask them for money. I didn't even know that happened. I was really, of course, you know, really excited about the opportunity, but then then kind of overwhelmed about the possibilities, like, well, where do I start? Right. What do I really want to do? And actually the, the person that I was communicating with from this foundation asked me a really great question. She asked me, what would you do if you had unlimited resources? That question was really amazing to me because, you know, no one had ever asked me that question And I realized that I typically do the opposite of that, meaning that I typically start with my limitations and then work from there. But I realized that question was asking me to do the opposite. That question was asking me to, instead of starting with my limitations, start with what I really want to do and then deal with my limitations. And I know it sounds like it's a simple flip, but it's actually a really important flip. Because it, it really, it real, and this is a connection to my faith, it, it made me realize that I had been going about this all wrong in that if I believe in an all-powerful God who can do anything, and if I am working through that, if I can tap into that power, not my power, God's power, then I, I shouldn't put my own limits on whatever it is that I, that I feel God is calling me to do. So I, I thought that question was great. I thought a lot about it. And that was when I, I went on this personal retreat 
to really take that question seriously. And it was then that I remembered about, I, ha I had heard about these efforts to work directly with education decision makers. And I thought, that's it. That's what I'm going to write about. That's what I'm going, that's what my proposal is going to be about. And that ended up being the first, the original funder of this partnership. It's called HERC, the Houston Education Research Consortium. And I used that funding to start, to start it up. And then it just blew up from there. I mean, it's, it's been crazy, like how, you know, like I said, it expanded to other districts and we have a lot more funders involved now and not just local funders but funders from all over the country and and then I started a few years ago I started a national network of these partnerships and there are 30 member partnerships now that are uh, we're all learning from each other and you know it's spreading it's um, I would call it a national movement frankly to really try to change the way that we do research to make sure that it has an impact and I can attribute what initiated all of that in me was a very spiritual experience that I had at a monastery. Shortly thereafter, we had the opportunity to hear from Dr. Amy Victoria Adkins-Jones, theologian and assistant professor at Boston College. We heard about the origins of her desire to research the issue of human trafficking, as well as Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the intersection of these two topics. Prior to that, I had been completely unaware of um, human trafficking and sex trafficking in the world, it was not quite yet the, the trendy issue uh, it has since become. The resonances that I felt between being a descendant of slaves uh, with folks who were being enslaved in a contemporary moment was overwhelming for me. And it felt like something that I had hope around in terms of the possibilities, but I was also devastated by what at the time I felt like the church really wasn't dealing well with, in part because I don't think that the church has really dealt with the legacy of slavery in the Americas as of yet either. I felt that before we could understand or try to fix all of these issues of trafficking. I really felt like there were a lot of questions and a lot of very convicting questions that Christianity, that Christian thought, that Christian theology has not asked and has not been willing to answer. Namely, before we can talk about human trafficking, before we can talk about sex trafficking, we have to be willing to talk about sex. We have to be willing to talk about gender. We have to be willing to talk about sexual abuse and sexual violence. We have to be willing to talk about uh, economic disparity. We have to be willing to talk about abject poverty. And it's like, well, wait a minute. We aren't asking where all of this came from. And we also aren't asking about the ways that the church and that our own theologies and that our own commitments to capitalism have been the conditions of possibility for this in the first place. So for me, I had this burning question of if we really, really want to address long-term and large-scale this problem, right? Like slavery has been happening for years and years and years from, you know, since before the early church, right? Like what, where does this come from? Mm -hmm. at, at this moment in our society with so many different interlocking and intersecting oppressions, for me, I, I wanted to know, well, wait, 
how do certain kinds of bodies become available for consumption in the first place? Well, I think that historically, when people are thinking about Christology, when think, people are thinking about the person and the work of Jesus, and when people are thinking about theological anthropology, you know, what it does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? For me, the questions that I was asking so readily and very obviously went back to Mary. Mary as the source of Christ's flesh, Mary as a young woman who lived in a very precarious position, who was uh, invited by God into something bigger, but something that was full of risk, full of um, full of opportunities for her own exploitation, all of these different kinds of questions. And I, I really kept coming back to these questions of gender and race and sexuality. And it seems like the obvious place to begin to think about these issues and to begin to think about what some have called the education of desire um, around the, how women's bodies, how reproduction, how reproductive histories have manifest and emerged um, in our world, Mary was the obvious place. Out of Chicago, Sandra Maria Van Opstel shared with us her thoughts on worship, justice, and bringing change in the church. Here are a couple of thoughts she offered that were particularly meaningful to me about the importance of mutuality and finding our place and using our voices. But what would it look like to actually design something in worship, aside from uh, kind of an extemporaneous prayer, where you would bring in a worship song or an element of worship or something at the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, that would bring in aspects of that culture as a way to connect with people more creatively or artistically? Because we know that it's not information that changes people or mobilizes people, it's metaphor, it's narrative, it's artistry, it's creativity, where people can almost tangibly encounter that community. But we need one another across socioeconomic differences. We need one another across racial and ethnic differences. We need one another across cultural differences. And so it's not to say, hey, mutuality is about like, even though we come from different spaces, we can still get along. Mutuality says, because we come from different spaces, we are better together. And then I think the third one is make your own table. So Mm -hmm. if there are spaces where you're not allowed at the table, start making your own tables. And I think that particularly women of color, we're really trying to do that. We're like, we're not accepted in the white women's spaces. We're not accepted in the white man spaces. We're not even sometimes accepted in spaces where it's our own ethnic group and it's all men. So we're just going to make our own tables because we're not sure if there ever will be made room at the table. And then as we do that, we're not, we're not going to operate out of scarcity or create tables that don't have the ability to put leaves inside of them to make more space. So I think really discerning what God has for you, finding allies to do it with, and then creating new spaces. I think those are important things. And I think, I mean, I would say it assumes, so let me clarify, it assumes that you would be doing this in community. After interviewing Sandra, she graciously introduced me to her friend, Dr. Joyce Del Rosario, who also shared with us the significance and importance of everyone having a place at the table 
through her concept of potluck theology. Joyce's thoughtfulness, joy, and desire to see everyone have a place at the table, especially those who are most marginalized, stood out to me from this interview. Here is a little preview of Joyce's thoughts on potluck theology. And so in my family, like I said, there, there's, you know, a gathering could be 60 people pretty easily. And so when we do potluck, we, we bring our best dishes to the table. Uncle Dan will Thanksgiving or Christmas, he'll always bring the turkey. And then Auntie Cecil will bring her fresh lumpia, which is a sort of an egg roll wrap. Cindy will bring her sausage stuffing. And, you know, I'll, my mom will bring her pancit, which is a Filipino noodle dish. And so everyone brings their best to the table, right? And right. as you can imagine, if there's like how many of us, and there's at least 30 dishes on the table, it's a feast every time. And so we all partake of everyone's joy, right? Like, and it's our love language to each other. Bringing our best to the table is our nonverbal way of saying, I love you. I care about you. I, I want you to have my best, right? So even for me, they, they always relegate me to mashed potatoes because I'm not that great of a cook, but I will do, you know, 20 pounds of mashed potatoes is no small thing. And then I'll make sure there's a vegan option and, a, you know, all the other things, but I'll do, I'll put all that I am into mashed potatoes because that's my love language, you know, to the rest of the family. Anyway, all that to say is we bring our best. And then I went to my first non-family, non-Filipino potlucks. And I was like, what? I, you know, someone would bring like a package of Oreos or like, you know, like a Costco roast chicken or something. I was like, oh, I love those things. But like, if we're honest, those are the easiest things that you can bring, right? And I realized like, oh, a lot of other potlucks that I was part of were about bringing the easiest thing to the table. Mm. And so my theology around that was, it actually was a multicultural ministry idea. But, you know, if we brought our best to the table every time and not the most convenient or the thing that we're used to and the thing, our feast would look very different. But there's a, a level of scarcity that sort of, that people operate in when they come in with sort of the easiest and quickest. Um, and then there's a, a, a theology of abundance that happens when we bring our best. And so it's like, what are we operating out of to begin with? And what are we sharing and partaking of? In order to enjoy the richness of the diversity of the table, no one can expect that their dish is the main dish. Once you think that your dish is the main dish, that makes all the other dishes side dishes or like accompaniments. And it relegates them to a smaller status. Or, you know, even if you physically just bring a dish that's too big, then that means that there's not space on the table for anyone else's dish. And maybe they have to be in a completely different room because your dish took up the whole space. Or there's people who, I get this to a degree, but I, I try to encourage my friends who tend to be picky eaters to try something that they haven't tried and not just to sort of shut out from the looks or the idea of it, but to just try it. But you have to have this openness to trying other dishes, right? Trying other people's things, because that's how we transform and expand our palates and expand our understanding. And unless we're able to do that, then we just stay with the same thing and the same flavor and the same taste, and we don't grow. Our palates stay the same, our theology stay the same, our worldviews stay the same, because we're only willing to stay in the lane that we're comfortable with and have been taught. As summer began, we were graced with author and poet Lucy Shaw's voice, including her offering the gift of reading more than a couple of her recently written and not yet published poems. 
Here is a little bit of my conversation with Lucy, as well as one of the poems that was most meaningful to me. Perhaps this question is going to be equitable to choosing a favorite child, but is there a poem of yours that you would consider to be one of your personal favorites, or even one that currently resonates with you now? Oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> you know, I've done... I've done 11 books of poetry, <laughs> right. and at the time of writing, all of those all of those poems are my favorites. <laughs> uh, probably the most recent ones are my favorites. Um, well, let's see. Okay, here's one that I just wrote the other day. I wouldn't say it's my favorite of all time, but it's the one that's most recent. Okay. Um, how creation dares us into a wild embrace of what is too beautiful to ignore. You open your front door and breathe, and all the old dust and confusion of your life falls behind you. You are not to remember it, no matter how it calls you. Instead, bend and examine closely how the grass has grown an inch under last night's rain, and the peony buds are swelling, the tips of pink petals already bursting free like prisoners wrongly convicted and now released. There's such generosity out there reaching towards you with hands open, claiming you, claiming you a created being issuing from the open mouth of God. My interview with Lucy serendipitously connected me with writer and speaker Catherine McNeil. And as the start of the academic year crept up on us, Catherine and I discussed her new book, also called All Shall Be Well, and the themes of hope in the midst of suffering, God bringing life from death, and ways that she experiences the goodness of Jesus in everyday moments, such as this story that she offered of goodness and hope in the midst of her own sorrow. I think on a daily basis, there is, there is that same nugget of hope, a smile from someone. I was taking an Uber, actually, from my last-minute airplane flight to my grandmother's hospital room as she was dying, and my Uber driver was the first person that I saw to tell him that my grandmother was dying, and he looked me in the eye from his rearview mirror, and he said, Catherine, have courage. You can do this. And here was a perfect stranger giving me this sacred encouragement. I said to him, you know, you were a minister of the gospel to me today. And I think it's here. You know, it's just as likely that I'm going to encounter a stranger who's going to say something harmful or hurtful. I don't want to be idyllic about our experience in the world at all. But I think those nuggets are there if we are looking for them. Again, not at all downplaying how severe the suffering and injustice, but I do, I am committed to keeping my eyes open to find those smiles, those moments of eye contact with my fellow humans, moments of beauty in the world around me. And shortly after Catherine shared with me her own stories of courage and hope, I had the honor and privilege to interview Rachel Denhollander, 
If you're not familiar with Rachel's story, she is an attorney, advocate, and educator who became known internationally as the first woman to file a police report and speak publicly against USA Gymnastics team doctor Larry Nasser, one of the most prolific sexual abusers in recorded history. As a result of Rachel's activism, over 250 women came forward as survivors of Nasser's abuse, leading to his life imprisonment. Here are a couple of excerpts from that interview with Rachel, including her sharing about the significance of the title of her book, as well as what scripture passage has been important to her lately. You know, the title of the book is What is a Girl Worth? Uh, And there's a children's book that goes along with that. How much is a little girl worth? And that was the defining question for me in choosing to come forward and speak so publicly uh, and in just not letting it go you know, doing everything I could do to push it forward. And that was the question that I asked every judge that I was in front of. Uh, By the time people tuned into the Ingham County sentencing and heard me ask that question, I had already been asking that question for every judge that Larry had been in front of for his sentencing for the child porn. And I asked it in Eaton County uh, when he was sentenced for the sexual assault crimes there. Uh, Because really, ultimately, what we do when we make a decision, when we're faced with a difficult situation, is we take out a scale. And on one side, we put things that we value. And on the other side, we put the consequences of our ideas. And we're weighing those things and we're deciding what we care about more, which one is worth more. And so when I had to come forward and I, and I made that decision to speak so publicly and so tenaciously and to not let it go and to take on a fight with these two major institutions, that's what I had to do. I had to look at what it was going to cost me personally and what it was going to cost my family Uh, and just the long-term consequences of relinquishing my privacy and my dignity and the financial cost and everything it was going to take. And on the other side were little girls who needed to be saved and women who needed to be set free and know the truth. And they were worth more than what it was going to cost. I have always loved Psalm 34. It really does a beautiful job uh, showing God's care and compassion for his creation. But there's a particular section in there, uh, and it says, They look to him and they are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. And that has just been such a powerful reminder to me, regardless of what I'm struggling through, uh, that when I am looking to the source of goodness and holiness and truth, and I am pursuing that, I have no reason to be ashamed. Uh, Not if I get a failing grade, uh, not if I have to release personal details that nobody was ever supposed to know, not if I feel like I haven't been successful. I have no reason to feel shame if I am looking to Christ. And while each guest this year's voice and story offered a unique glimpse into the character of God, as well as challenged me through thoughtful dialogue, the last few minutes of my interview with English professor and writer Susanna Childress stuck with me through most of this year. At the end of each interview, I have asked each guest the same question. Is there a particular quote, scripture, song, or other set of words that have been meaningful to you lately? And when I asked that question to Susanna, she shared a quote from writer and poet Ross Gay on the relationship between joy and sorrow. And I've been pondering it ever since. I am reading Ross Gay's Book of Delights. He's a poet uh, who just Speaking of gratitude, he is a he is a poet of gratitude. His last book of poems is called Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, right? And so he's got this book of essays that I'm reading. And 
I could just read a ton of it to you, but there's this one moment that I think is really important. He's working through a list of, of things that are really hard, right? And not just his own, but people around him. In profound personal sorrow, brother addicted, mother murdered, dad died in surgery, rejected by the family, cancer came back, evicted, fetus not okay, everyone, regardless, always of everything. Not to mention the existential sorrow we might all be afflicted with, which is that we and what we love will soon be annihilated, which sounds more dramatic than it might. Let me just say dead. Is this sorrow of which our impending being no more might be the foundation the great wilderness is sorrow the true wild and if it is and if we join them your wild to mine what's that for joining too is a kind of annihilation what if we joined our sorrows i'm saying i'm saying what if that is joy Finally, in the spirit of ending the podcast with that same question, is there a particular quote, scripture, song, or other set of words that has been meaningful to you lately? I thought I would conclude with sharing what set of words has been meaningful to me as well. And as I was asking myself this question, I realized how challenging it is to choose just one thing to share. So a quick preface is that I'm a person who listens to songs on repeat. And usually if I have an album or song that resonates with me, I'll listen to it on repeat for almost a full semester. So this semester, I've been doing a graduate internship as I'm completing my master's in clinical mental health counseling. And one of the songs that I've had on repeat on my commute has been a song that I actually discovered a couple of years ago and have been revisiting it this fall. And it's a song by a band called Giants and Pilgrims. Title is There's a Balm in Gilead. And one of the verses in the song goes like this. There is a balm in Gilead. It's a spring in the desert for the withered of soul. It's a strength and a power that keeps making you whole. It's the question you're asking and the answers you need. It's the face you've been seeking, the one, the one you've been begging to see. So as we conclude 2019, may you continue to experience Christ's restoration and redemption in the coming year, both in your life and within the academy and professions. And may you find hope in Jesus, as St. Julian of Norwich did, that all shall be well and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Again, thank you so much for being part of our conversations this year. In addition to the podcasts mentioned in this review, we hope you'll check out all of our episodes from 2019, including Kate Denson on Loving Your Neighbor, Lisa Deem on Maps to Guide Us, Lisa Sung with A Call to Unity in Christ, Stephanie Gehring with her Lenten poem, Wheat, Elaine Storkey on her book, Scars Across Humanity, interviewed by Jasmine Obisikerer for the WAP Book Club, Felina Hewerts on contemplative activism, Michelle Reyes on narrative justice and the art of story, and Amanda Benkhausen about her book, The Gospel According to Eve, interviewed by WAP director Karen Guzman. Thank you as well to my WAP colleagues, Anne Boyd and Andrea Bridges, for all of their behind-the-scenes assistance with each episode. From all of us, thank you for listening and joining the conversation. Again, if you would like to help support future episodes, please consider making a special year-end contribution at givetoiv.org WAP. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. 
This is Caroline Trisick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.